Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The election of Donald Trump was a surprise and a great disappointment for those of us who voted otherwise. But as things began to be analyzed, and those, especially Democrats, who voted for Trump began to state why they did so, then Trump's election at least became understandable. He was many people's preference to Hillary Clinton. Okay, we get that. What we haven't gotten, what has deeply shocked, baffled, and greatly disturbed us, and continues to disturb us, is the devotion, not of Trump's followers on the political right, but of his followers on the Christian right. Here is a person whose past and continuing life seems to go so contrary to what the Christian right has professed to believe and vocally stand for. Yet, somehow, beyond any reasons that seem conceivably consistent with their values, many on the Christian right seem to see Trump as God's anointed. That this conviction continues to be the case for many on the Christian right is confirmed by the appearance of a billboard in Georgia in September of last year, 2021, in which a picture of Trump appears alongside the words of the prophet Isaiah, which say, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Since the writing of the New Testament, those words have been understood by Christians to apply to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, they are being used by conservative Christians to apply to former President Donald Trump. My first clue that something like this conviction and devotion was beginning occurred before Trump's election. I saw a YouTube video in which the graphic showed a picture of Trump juxtaposed beside Aslan the Lion, which is the Christ figure from C.S. Lewis's Christian allegory, The Chronicles of Narnia. When I watched that video, it was of a charismatic Christian prophet prophesying not only of Trump's election, but of his chosenness by God. To give us insight, and hopefully some understanding of this wildly confusing phenomena, is my guest today, Dr. Dan Stiver. Dr. Stiver sees the phenomena rooted in the hermeneutic used by Christian evangelicals. After explaining this hermeneutic, Dan will offer us a way forward, drawing on the writings of Christian philosopher Paul Ricoeur. Dan taught Christian philosophy for 14 years at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Since 1998, he has taught at Hardin-Simmons University's Logden Seminary. Dan is the author of four books, including Life Together in the Way of Jesus, an Introduction to Christian Theology, and Recur and Theology. In addition, Dan has contributed to and edited numerous other publications. So welcome, Dan. Thank you for being with me today. Why don't we begin by letting you discuss in your own understanding, white evangelical understanding of hermeneutics. Okay. Uh, it's good to be with you, David, and in the future, whoever's listening on a topic that's very important and, of course, very interesting. 
my whole life I've lived among evangelicals and mostly white, I would say. And when I was uh, growing up, it was Southern Baptist um, and melding them into evangelicalism. And then uh, going to Southern Baptist seminaries, teaching at Southern Seminary. But I have to say, in all of that time, I'm like you and many others, I am completely astonished and flabbergasted at the direction white evangelicals as a whole have gone, perhaps identifying them with the famous 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then have continued to support him um, and voted for him similarly in, in 2020. As, as you point out, going against almost everything it seems like they, they had stood for before. And it led me and many others to wonder and question, like, how is this possible? And then more recently, with the prominence of outlandish, far-fetched conspiracy theories that have attracted many in the same group, not the wildest ones, not as many, but uh, 25% of Republicans, it's estimated, uh, support basically the QAnon conspiracy theories. Recently, we had a good group, a big group in Dallas coming to await the coming of JFK Jr. and some JFK. They were over there on the bridge, great gathering that was going to come and somehow support Trump and bring Trump back to power. And many of us have friends and people we know who are otherwise seemingly sane people who have gone down that kind of rabbit hole in one way or the other. So that's been a big question. I, I was really led to think along these lines by my general interest in hermeneutics anyway. Uh, I have a great interest in philosophical hermeneutics particularly. But a few years ago, I read um, an article, an essay by Mark Knoll, and then I read a book by him, a prominent evangelical historian, church historian, who talked about the fact that at the time of the Civil War, the pro-slavery advocates basically won the biblical battle, hands down, without much question. And he explored that issue to some extent, and it raised the question, well, why was that possible? And his point was that most of the country shared a common hermeneutic. The one we're going to talk about is an evangelical hermeneutic. I'm going to put it more provocatively as a slavery hermeneutic, as I've come to think about it, uh, that made it possible for Christians going to church, deacons, pastors, leaders in the church, prominent leaders to own slaves and somehow not have enough cognitive dissonance between that and their faith uh, that they could do it, even do it with what they saw as biblical support, do it with enthusiasm. And in, in, in fact, as no points out, that in part led to the uh, that biblical support is in part what led to support for the Civil War. 
worst war in our nation's history. And I'll go into some of the details of that in a second, but just to give a kind of historical timeline to show the significance of it, um, that hermeneutic did not go away after the Civil War. In many ways, the mainline denominations pulled away from it, but it remained among evangelicals all the way up through, uh, all the way through the 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, George Marsden, in his great book on fundamentalism, traces this uh, hermeneutic in a lot of ways through up through the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, and talked about how significant that was uh, for what he broadly is calling either evangelical or fundamentalist at that time. And then with evangelicals per se emerging after World War II as a kind of uh, distinct sociological group in the United States, it's uh, very influential. Now, uh, Christian Smith uh, and many others, actually, he wrote a really good book called The Bible Made Impossible, analyzing more or less current evangelicals basically as having the same that we could call also, it's sometimes called biblicism or literalism, um, or we'll call it an evangelical hermeneutic. So uh, what is distinctive or significant about it? And as, as I got to looking more closely at it, some things jumped out. One is that it basically has a flat Bible approach. That is, it tends to see all of Scripture as more or less on the same level. Now, everyone is aware there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, but it often functions in the way if one would find something in the Old Testament that you like, that you want to be supportive, it's there. It's of equal validity to the, to the New Testament. Um, ironically, and without saying anything pejorative about other groups, that approach to inspiration is much more like uh, Mormonism and Islam, where scripture is sort of delivered in a short period of time, more or less from God or an angel. And the revelation is in that language, uh, Arabic in the case of uh, the Quran or English in the case of the Book of Mormon. Uh, whereas Christian scripture developed in a very different way. In, in ways that both Judaism and, and uh, Christianity sees it. So that's one issue, flat Bible. And then um, Morrison talks about the influence of, uh, influence of Scottish common sense realism explicitly on evangelicals in the 19th century. And that was a philosophy that helped leaders uh, give impetus to something that was already there without it, but to emphasize that the Bible is made up of facts. And at that time, science had a lot of prestige, and people thought at that time that science is made up of facts too. Facts are not interpreted. Facts are bare facts. There's not much room for interpretation of facts. Facts are real, solid. It's hard to debate facts. And at that time, they used language of seeing the Bible as uh, a book of uh, facts just like science is. The Bible is an encyclopedia of facts. So you just look up things, you find a fact, and then you have it. 
Now, part of the significance of that is it doesn't allow room for interpretation very much. If you have a fact, you've got the truth. And if you have it and someone disagrees with you, what do they have? Well, they, they don't have the facts. They don't have the truth. And it, it, it actually makes it very difficult to have a conversation because one's whole approach does not allow much room for difference of interpretation, difference of opinion. And I've mentioned before, a great example Marson gave was the president of Wheaton about 100 years ago, puzzling over this, like, how can people disagree with me? And he attributed it to uh, uh, university professors who smoked and had long summer vacations. <laughs> so one thing that one needs to have is a hermeneutic that allows for differences in interpretation uh, and allows for the complexity of scripture, allows for the movement of scripture, history, and development, which is really not a part of this hermeneutic. Another aspect of that is there was a Reformation emphasis on what was called the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. And I always liked that when I ran across it first, I guess, uh, with my Baptist background of the priesthood of all believers. And the idea was that anyone can go to Scripture and interpret it, the basic message, pretty well. One does not have to be an expert. One does not have to be a priest. One does not have a trained pastor, uh, that the Bible is accessible uh, to all people. Well, in the American context of slavery, this uh, emphasis got expanded and inflated, you might say, to imply that all of Scripture is pretty accessible. And given the sort of democratic ethos of America, and Mark Hull talks about this, it, it, it implied that just in the individualism of America, that anybody can go and find it. And it's pretty clear. And so the idea is what's, if it's clear to me, then it's, it's true. That's what it is. Um, and if you don't allow much for interpretation, and you assume that all the Bible, this flat Bible, it speaks with pretty much one voice. If you go looking for something and you find it and it seems clear to you that that's what it's saying, like for the pro-slavery groups, that slavery is affirmed by God. Um, the institution is, is in the Bible. And so it's okay, even affirmed. Then you can assume the rest of the Bible must agree. Even if it you find something that seems to disagree, you can assume, well, somehow it, it must agree because this is clear to me. There's an ancient hermeneutical principle that one should interpret the obscure by the clear in the Bible. And that actually is not a bad hermeneutical principle, but it can get distorted in this case to lead one to not even pay attention to any anything that is in tension with or seems to go contrary to what one has found. Okay, with all all of that in mind, you know, imagine it in the American context and you're a slave owner and you really would like support for it. You would, and, and if 
especially you would like the Bible to support what you're doing. This is, a, in a way, almost a perfect instrument to be able to go find what you want in the Bible, hold it, and be very confident and bold about it. Uh, we'll talk about confirmation bias, but there are a lot of studies in that now. But you can imagine this as something that was over time and under the pressure of slavery and rationalizing, defending what's going on. Some of these Reformation principles and other approaches to Scripture were polished, refined, sharpened in such a way to make it possible for the Bible to support one's confirmation bias. The thing is, it's not just the content then of what they found that is support for slavery. It's the way they were able to find it. And the significance of that is, fortunately, you don't find even many evangelicals supporting slavery. But the same hermeneutic still allows one to, to go to the Bible and find what one wants without much challenge or tension. Um, and to, in a sense, wield what one finds over against anyone who disagrees on many other issues. And that's what happens. It could be women in ministry. Um, now it can be issues, uh, LGBTQ issues. In earlier times, it could be divorce. You know, could a divorced person um, be a pastor uh, or be a deacon, ordination? Uh, it, it allows one to apply it in many, many, many other ways. And that's still with us. That's pretty much the hermeneutic I absorbed growing up. It's the hermeneutic I see over and over students still coming uh, to college with, to seminary with. And, uh, and others have no, described this hermeneutic as well, like uh, Stan Grins, Roger Olson, and others who've uh, tried to describe evangelicals. Maybe that's a stopping point, just to, to see if you want uh, to want to clarify something or push it in another direction. No, no, I think that that was helpful. Uh, you know, but but as it brings it into the present, then um, how does this hermeneutic? Um, because there's there is this um, dissonance uh, with science now. Um, and I mean, because my wife lives uh, in just above Cincinnati, uh, and on the way there, uh, there is the Creation Museum uh, with a life-size uh, Noah's Ark. Um, and so, how does this hermeneutic influence uh, the understanding of white evangelicals uh, with creation uh, and their subsequent suspicion of science? Um, that kind of thing. Well, that as I uh, was looking into this and, and spoke about it, for example, to the uh, 
Society for the Study of Paul Ricoeur, as a philosopher I like, uh, which was pretty interesting to talk with many of them who are it's a very international group and uh, many more in the Northeast, Canada, and so on, to talk about Texas and evangelicals. It's like a foreign world to them and talk about some of these things. But as I looked into it more, I, I think exactly what you're talking about uh, becomes important it, because it's not just the hermeneutic in general. There's certain traditional uh, findings or conclusions of it that are hugely influential right now. Um, this hermeneutic allows one to affirm it and hold it, but the, the particular views are significant, and one of those is creationism. And interestingly, it's at the beginning and the end, creationism at the beginning and uh, the rapture theory or eschatology or the end times, uh, technically dispensational premillennialism is huge among white evangelicals. Those, those two views uh, would not include 100% of evangelicals, but a huge number. Uh, grow up with affirming creationism and the rapture theory, and usually are not even aware there is another view. That that's just Christianity to them. And uh, they're very significant views often. And, and I want to talk about how, how they do that, but just to give an idea of how they often become much more significant than what one would think is uh, like sociologically groups or tribes, let's say, um, often find markers that help identify who's in and who's out. This often has to do with beliefs. And the thing is, is if the beliefs are held by everybody, they're not a good marker. Um, so the beliefs maybe need to be a little sketchy, a little different, unusual. Because if, if you run across someone who has that belief, like I'm a creationist, well, you know all kinds of things already about them. I mean, in this tribe, let's say, you know, okay, you're in my group. I know I can assume all kinds of other things about you. And both of these are those kind of markers. So how does it work? Of course, some of some maybe listening aren't familiar with uh, creationism and what that means. In this context, it, it means uh, that God created the universe not very long ago. It's often called young earth creationism. The earth is young and the universe is young. 6,000 years maybe 10, some will allow stretch it 60,000 years or so. Um, and that's based on taking what they would say is the is Genesis 1, literally, that God created in six literal days. I don't like that language because I don't think that's even a literal uh, interpretation of Genesis 1, but that's the way that they would look at it. Um, so, you know, that raises enormous questions about the dinosaurs, about the uh, Grand Canyon geology, um, stars that are supposedly millions, even billions of light years away. Uh, how, how does all that work? Most 
young people don't grow up delving into all of the reasons. They just, well, if you believe the Bible, this is what you believe. And it's just a part of the whole culture. And you can imagine then how when you go to school and, and unless you're might be homeschooled or a private school that continues to teach this at some point, if you encounter evolution, you encounter geology, you encounter these other things, it's just a huge clash built in between your faith, the Bible, God, and science. And what it looks like if you're in that view that there's a conspiracy going on <laughs> among scientists. These scientists are all together. Um, teaching something that's, from your view, kind of crazy. Um, that the universe is billions of years old and so on. Of course, evolution with the Scopes Monkey Trial became one of the sociological markers. Evolution particularly. But the young earth issues goes far beyond evolution. You know, like I said, geology, astronomy, I remember hearing, I was in a meeting with a prominent scientist in the Reagan administration, this was long ago, of course, who argued that uh, on this issue of how, how can we see these stars that are millions of light years away, that light is slowed down. And all of these are really, I mean, this was a prominent scientist in the Reagan administration that actually the implication is black holes stars are right next to us. They're only like 6,000 years away. And in, in science, there are few constants more solid than the speed of light. So it's like, um, how, you know, how does that work? And, and if black holes were that close to us, we would be gone a long time ago, unless you throw out the law of gravity as well, and a lot of other things. But anyway, you can see how this just builds in very deeply from young people up uh, distrust of science. So to me, it's not surprising at all in a way that there's all, once it became politicized, that there's this distrust of the coronavirus, vaccination, even though they may get shots and go to the doctor all the time in other ways, um, that it's very easy to think, okay, there's a conspiracy. Well, this, this kind of extends also, you said, not just to science, but to government. Yeah. The other end, the other end is, uh, is the rapture theory, uh, which is a fairly new view in the history of Christianity. Uh, Emerged in the 19th century and uh, became very popular with the popularity of the Scofield Bible in the 20th century. But there, the idea is that there are two future comings of Christ, which is hardly ever thought of before in the history of Christianity, that that would be an interpretation of the New Testament. But this has Christ will come twice and will come and rapture, take out all of the Christians from the earth and leave all the non-Christians left, and then there will be tribulation. But where the government comes in, it's taking the book of Revelation, there will be an antichrist who will arise and become a government, world government leader, and uh, uh, 
unify governments to oppose God, and then finally there will be a battle of Armageddon against all these forces. Um, this again is a view that many, probably most evangelicals grow up with and can't even imagine another view. They don't even know there's another view. And it's often taught around campfires, youth groups, their movies, their books. Often young people, it's used as a form of evangelism to scare people to death kids to death so that you'll become a Christian so you'll be raptured and you won't be left here during the uh, tribulation. But a big part of it is to distrust government and especially anything that looks like the mark of the beast. Any kind of mark, any kind of like an injection, anything the government is wanting to do to you, that becomes like, that's uh, suspicious and looks like, well, it might be a mark of the beast, which is part of the language going on right now about the vaccinations for COVID. I think an important part of this is to realize that these are beliefs, of course, but they're deeply embodied. Deeply, uh, people are immersed in them. Say they're emotional issues as, as well. They're a part of the faith that one learns very early on, along with many other things. And belief in God, uh, respect for the authority of Scripture, it all gets uh, intermingled uh, together with this hermeneutic, this way of approaching the Bible, uh, the belief in creationism belief in the rapture theory. So it's, it's much more than just rational beliefs. Um, they are felt. And uh, if they're challenged, there's often an emotional response. It's often more, more than conscious, unconscious. Uh, a reaction challenging my faith. And that's important. I, I mean, I think it Faith is important. I've always liked Paul Tillich's uh, definition of uh, faith as having to do with their ultimate concern. We go into a little more detail about the idea of an embodied uh, ideology and an embodied belief, because you, you you're talking about that. It is felt that you know it's it's an emotional response. Kind of build on that, and then uh, how does that? relate to what you were talking about earlier with the confirmation bias. Okay. So it's an important thing to realize that these are far more than just ideas that they're felt in our bones, so to speak, and they're learned often at a young age and become a part of our identity and maybe part of our ultimate concern. And so it's very hard to stand back and hear someone criticize them. It's very hard to have a conversation with someone. The role of it being very embodied, very felt, very emotional is very significant because it helps us understand, I think, uh, the role of confirmation bias and how significant that is and how challenging it is to deal with. And I should say it's something that affects all of us. All of us are uh, affected by the dynamics of confirmation the studies show pretty much all of us have a tendency to look for support for what we already believe. Um, 
one of the interesting studies that I saw was one where they looked at people with higher intelligence, higher IQ scores, higher education, gave them the same test, and found out that they were just as biased as everybody else, <laughs> except they came up with more elaborate rationalizations for why they were right, you know, why they believe what they did. So it's a challenge for everybody. Uh, it's not just conservatives or not just evangelicals. But a part of that is is that we often react to things, we could say in biased or prejudiced ways, before our conscious minds engage. So that can be tested by having your skin monitored, your brain monitored, and so on, and um, putting people in certain situations or seeing pictures and so on and how they react to them. and the indications that are oftentimes our unconscious mind can see certain things or hear certain things and our bodies are already reacting before we're consciously aware. Now you can imagine in, uh, let's say from a kind of evolutionary perspective, how that might be somewhat helpful. That's that the fight or flight instinct might be triggered if you see like people would say, like a stick that looks like a snake on the path. You see it and you re react quickly. Well, that's probably good if it was a snake or a poisonous snake. Um, but then there's a place for the conscious mind to come in and say, oh, look at it. Oh, that's, that's a snake. But our body's already gone down the road. It's already agitated. It's already stimulated. And that same kind of things happen when we hear trigger words. Um, like liberal or uh, someone challenging creationism or belief or they don't believe in the rapture or big government wanting us to do something. Uh, we can have reactions to that before we're even starting to think about it consciously. We may not even be aware of our bodily reactions. So um, that makes it much harder and uh, much more difficult. Jonathan Haidt, uh, as a psychologist, has a good book called The Righteous Mind, who's looked into this kind of thing, and also the issue of moral disgust quite a bit, um, and talks about um, that our conscious mind and the relationship to the unconscious is kind, kind of like a rider on an elephant. The elephant is the unconscious mind. Uh, the estimates usually are that the 90 to 95% of brain functioning is unconscious. So it's about 5 to 10%. It's much faster by, by a factor of 10, much faster, the unconscious mind. And like I said, there probably are good evolutionary reasons for that. And we can't stop and think about everything as we go through the day. We can't stop and analyze in a slow way everything that happens. So theologically, I, I like to think of that as in terms of Genesis 1, everything created by God is good, or Paul says everything created by God is good and it's to be received in Thanksgiving. So there's a role for that. It's just in our complex society where we're not just dealing with 
snake that might be a stick or a stick that might be a snake. You know, much we're dealing with much more complex things. It it's it can make it really difficult. So what Height was saying it's not like the rider is really guiding the elephant and very much in control. It's more like the elephant's in control and the rider's asleep. And the elephant may go off the path, go off the path, and the rider kind of wakes up and says, oh, oh, wait a second. Let me see if I can get this elephant back on the path. That's more the picture of how we often function when it comes to these, uh, especially deeply felt beliefs or important beliefs. So that kind of reaction, if we're, if we're already reacting negatively to something, our tendency is to go ahead and say, well, there must be a good reason for it. Oh yeah, let's be negative because I, I feel negative. I feel strongly about it. And it takes actually some effort to stand back and say, oh, that's not really a snake after all. That's a stick. I don't need to be this agitated, but I may have to calm down. Um, that works in the area of what we're talking about here. And it makes it easy to see how uh, people in a tribe, a group, let's say white evangelicals, can uh, just reinforce their beliefs and find things that reinforce their beliefs even when they seem preposterous. Like, this is not QAnon, but just apparently about 75% of Republicans, many of them are the white evangelicals, I think the percentages are, are similar, still hold that the election, the presidential election was a fraud. That Donald Trump won and was cheated out of the election. Despite the enormous evidence, I mean, in politics, it's hard to find anything where you just have overwhelming evidence. But this may be one <laughs> where it's 50 some court cases where they were not, were hardly even, not even one serious case and often virtually laughed out of court. So there's evidence after evidence after evidence, even, you know, a Republican in Trump's administration saying this was the safest election that he knew of in history. So you have, all of that, and yet people continue to have that, that belief. Um, and I guess we should add a, a huge factor now, even though conspiracy theories have been around for a long time. Um, I'm reading a book now that talks about conspiracy, the whole, the whole American tradition of conspiracies, especially about politics that go throughout our entire history. So that, that's been around a long time. But I do think social media makes it worse. And that's sad because I thought the internet and all of this was going to be a really good thing. I started out pretty enthusiastic about it. I started teaching online classes pretty early and done a lot and, and like that. But whereas I think the initial idea was that it would make information accessible more easily, more easily accessible to more people. And we could actually be better critical thinkers. It actually, I think, is often works in the other direction so that we can stay in our own echo, echo chamber and, and just find the sources that confirm our biases and reinforce what we already think and ignore everything else. And in that sense, 
it makes it worse. Um, maybe a good example of that, I think back to the reaction to Nixon, um, which was somewhat different. But there you had, at that time, I think maybe just three news television shows, maybe, maybe four, I'm not sure. Uh, ABC had started yet. But may, I think maybe just three. And they all roughly gave the same message. They were reporting the news. Here's the news. And it was pretty consistent across those networks. So there was still, I mean, I've read that if the Republicans had had the majority in the committee that voted that they were going to go forward with uh, impeachment of Nixon, that all the Republicans voted against the motion. It was totally party line, even back then. It just, the Democrats were in a majority. Nixon might never have left office if the Republicans had been in power the way they were the first two years under uh, Trump, for example. But still, there was sort of popular opinion and a wide sort of uh, outrage to what had happened. There was kind of more of a common narrative nationwide. And people maybe they had other beliefs. They were they watched the news at all. They were confronted with contrary views. But now you don't have that. You don't ever have to really confront anything negative unless it's already filtered through your chosen source. Yeah, I've noticed that, you know, uh, Fox News versus MSNBC, um, they talk about how uh, Facebook, uh, based on, you know, who you respond to, what you click on, uh, filter stuff to you that, that like I say, keeps you in a, a limited group uh, of people that you interact with. Because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm friends with 200 and some people, but it's, it's the same uh, set of people that I tend to get uh, things from on Facebook. Uh, that, you know, kind of keeps you within your own silo. Uh, yeah, and so if you really don't like it, you can just defriend them. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, but, but why then Trump and all of this? Uh, what, what is it that he did that brought all this together for him? Well, that I, I think it is a good question without real easy answers because it is just phenomenal. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we're both old enough to remember back when Clinton was under attack from Republicans and the moral majority. And you can have people who are still alive and we can see what they said at that time. But evangelicals were uh, claiming that had to have high moral character to be president. There's you know, no qualification of that. And all kinds of things about what you had to have in a president and support for the Constitution. And they would respect voting rights. It's not that long ago the Republicans and Democrats both voted for supporting voting rights in the early 2000s. And now it's like all of that's out the window, um, virtually. Now, you could say often uh, there's a single issue involved or two issues that really agitate uh, white evangelicals, that is abortion and gay marriage. And so uh, 
Trump promised to deliver on those. And, and then it becomes just, okay, we're throwing out all of our principles so we can get what, what we want uh, on a few principles. We'll throw out, we'll sacrifice a lot of moral principles for a few. And I mean, that does look like a lot of what is happening. I, I wouldn't have thought it and wouldn't have expected it to such a degree. But it's happening. And then what happens if you if you want Trump, you have to find a way to rationalize it. This is we're back to confirmation by skin. And you actually have some pretty intelligent people out there who are good at thinking of reasons. And uh, you you have to start um, thinking, well, he's he's been converted, he's a new convert, and now you know, now he's a Christian and he's still learning and then you go back to Cyrus in the Old Testament. God sometimes uses people to do God's will who are not that exemplary. Um, and then some think he is very Christian. You know, like I think you mentioned the uh, the sign about Trump being messianic. And there was a prominent Republican who suggested we might have to add a book of the Bible. Yeah. A, a book yeah. of Trump. Okay, so then it gets kind of crazy. But you can see people are trying to rationalize what yeah. they already, what they want to believe. Yeah, that's that's real scary to me, the book of Trump uh, and that kind of language. But you think, and, and without getting uh, too technical on us, uh, you think that Paul Ricoeur uh, offers us a way forward. <laughs> so how is that? Okay, well, that's probably the great, the greatest surprise of all of this is probably that. Um, Paul Ricoeur, I, I think, is more of an example, but he, he is one of the most prominent hermeneutical philosophers. Hermeneutics is a huge part of um, his philosophy and why people are interested in him. So if, if you ask, well, what do we do about this? Uh, well, one part of it is to have a better hermeneutic. And uh, he would represent that kind of hermeneutic, as many other people would. Um, you know, I think one thing we could say, wherever we can, if there are teachers, ministers, people uh, in churches teaching others, one of the things to do is to teach a better approach to the Bible. And, and I would say a good approach to the Bible, um, that that is so Im important. And that's a that that'll be a long and hard and daunting task, but it's it's what most seminaries are involved in, and even a lot of people when they go to college and take required Bible courses there, they start to learn a better hermeneutic. And part of that is then learning that the Bible is complex, and there is movement in the Bible, the revelation of Christ. Uh, it helps us look back at the Old Testament and affirm some things very clearly. You should love your neighbor as yourself, um, love God, but also questions other things like genocide, holy war, hating your enemies, um, and a lot of other things where people go to the Old Testament and find verses, let's say on the gay issue, that it calls into question, it allows one to read critically through all the Bible and uh, have a, 
people would call a, a, a love hermeneutic, a Jesus hermeneutic. And see that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak as directly to our issues, like science, for example. Genesis 1 is not a science book. That's what we get first. Genesis is not a science book. The Bible is not a science book. Uh, just to start with that. And that would just remove huge numbers of uh, obstacles and impediments and anguish over many young people struggling with their faith. They just need that to start with. Um, Ricoeur uh, emphasized one of his books, uh, titles, subtitles, The Surplus of Meaning. Uh, he has a great statement that I like. A text means all that it can be. And he's especially, he's written a whole book on metaphor, philosophy of metaphor, three-volume work on narrative, uh, an early book on the symbolism of evil, on symbols. So he's very attentive to rich language, like the parables of Jesus, or the sayings of Jesus, or the Psalms. And he's very attentive to genre. And even though he's primarily a philosopher, when he's delved into, uh, he's a Christian, uh, he was a Christian, so he's not alive. He uh, actually did groundbreaking work, which is pretty amazing. Uh, in one essay that's been uh, influential, he talked about the significance of genre or inspiration. And so he pointed out that often we think of inspiration in terms of the prophets. Well, God told me, God spoke to me, thus saith the Lord. So we think of it, okay, God told me what to say, and then I say it. And it that's that's not the uh, the, uh, the total or the best even characterization of the way it worked for prophets. But he would say, well, what about the history books? We don't even know the authors. They're they they receive. They're anonymous. Uh, what about the Psalms and poetry? Uh, what about all the books in the Bible? And we don't we don't know who the authors are. There are many different genres in the Bible, and they all we would say are inspired. So our view of inspiration and our way of naming God, as he put it, has to include all of these genres and ways and figures of speech, figurative language, and understanding how that works uh, in, in order to really get at it, rather than selecting one kind of approach and just taking that maybe even in a kind of wooden So the prophets certainly reflect their personality, uh, their way of speaking, their time, their context, even, even then when they spoke, thus saith the Lord. When you talk about a salutary hermeneutic that Kuhr has, what is that? Um, well, uh, a hermeneutic that would... Um, be a healthy hermeneutic is probably a good way to put it. But I mentioned earlier that one of the problems with the uh, literalist hermeneutic, or again, to put it pejoratively, the slavery hermeneutic, uh, that where it was kind of sharpened and refined under the time of slavery and then Jim Crow, Jim Crow era, um, is that it didn't allow at the outset for disagreement didn't allow for uh, difference very much for differences of 
outcome interpretation. But if you have a hermeneutic like recourse and, and actually many others that allows for the surplus of meaning and the richness of language of various genres, you can realize you can have people of goodwill, people of good intentions and faith who might disagree significantly over quite a lot of things in terms of biblical interpretation or interpretation of the Christian faith. And so it creates already uh, a hermeneutics uh, with humility to start with. And I would like to think a hermeneutics of charity as well, where you follow the golden rule, try to interpret others the way you would want to be interpreted, to try to interpret you at your best, uh, maybe sometimes as well as the worst, but at least give someone sometimes the benefit of the doubt and uh, interpret them with their best arguments, not their worst. We often take us at our best and caricature the other. <laughs> that's, that's what we're tempted to do. And then, and you can see that happening all the time. Like, you know, another big, huge discussion you may have covered in, uh, with others is critical race theory today. I mean, that's just a good example. Well, I'm going to be having an interview uh, directly about that, but also uh, interviewed uh, Benjamin Boswell uh, on uh, uh, critical white theory. Uh, that's an offshoot. Uh, from critical race theory. Okay. Uh, about well, that. a big thing to come into that and be fair and not caricature. Yeah. And uh, real, you know, realize in any movement there are probably there are probably thousands of proponents, and they don't all have the same views and agree. But what we often do is pick out the most scandalous or shocking statement anybody's made and say, "Well, that's it." Yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, how how similar is Ricoeur's hermeneutic to like a rabbinic uh, hermeneutic, where they bring in multiple voices and kind of set them beside each other as equal voices? Well, I think it's very compatible. He didn't particularly uh, emphasize that as a theme and in, in himself identifying himself as similar to midrash or rabbinical hermeneutics, but uh, others have seen that, and I do too. Uh, one of my good friends and collaborators in the Recur Society is a Jewish rabbi who's recently edited a book uh, that comments on a, uh, a book that Recur did with an Old Testament scholar called Thinking Biblically. And they would take turn, they would take a text, and the Old Testament scholar would write on it, and then Recur would write on it a dialogue kind of through the whole book. And then we did a recent book where we uh, kind of went back uh, to that book and talked about the significance of it. But anyway, Joseph Edelheit is a rabbi who does that. And we've talked about this kind of thing. Uh, so the idea there, a lot of the, this, uh, the Jewish uh, ethos uh, in general is to see the Hebrew Bible as a dialogue, a dialogue with God, and you have different voices and different perspectives. And 
it's often part of the purpose of it is the dialogue, uh, the learning, the relationships that occur in dialogue. And so you might have, like, uh, I think an interesting example toward the end of the Old Testament, you have uh, a book like Daniel after the exile. So the issue of identity is huge, Jewish identity. You have a book, the book of Daniel emphasizes you need to keep your Jewish identity. That's really important. Well, then you have another book, Jonah, which suggests that their enemies, their greatest enemies, may be more spiritual, could repent and turn to God, and that pleases God. And Jonah you know, is very upset about that. But it gives you know, a very different message uh, about being, uh, being open you know, far beyond uh, the Jewish people per se. And I think that's the way Jew, okay, you tell your story, now I'll tell another story. Okay, well, then you tell another story. And uh, you have a continuing dialogue that gets at a very complex and mysterious uh, reality, which is God and God's ways with the world. Uh, I think, you know, that I, I re my friend, the, the rabbi, recently wanted me to listen to some lectures by a, a female rabbi on the book of Job that were very fascinating. Um, but just thinking about the the book of Job in the canon is significant in the way that, in a, in a lot of ways, Job's friends represent what a lot of people took from the rest of the Hebrew Bible. That the way it works, that if you do good, you'll be blessed in, in this life. And if you don't do good, you'll be punished. And that's rejected in the book of Job. And so you get a, you realize that what's often called the Deuteronomic uh, theology is not as simple as they thought it was. There's innocent suffering. There's not, Job's very complex and uh, not easy to interpret, but, but I think if there's one thing that is pretty clear, to get back to the perspicuity of scripture, one thing that does seem pretty clear in the book of Job for, for many people is that there is innocent suffering. And that's what all the friends were rejecting. And even Jesus had to deal with that. It was still around by the time of the New Testament. Jesus had the questions, why, who sinned, this man or his parents, you know, that he was born blind. He's still, and we deal with it still today. If something bad happens, we're often prone to say, who's, who's fault? If a hurricane hits a certain city, we might say, <laughs> whose fault is that? We still do it. So that, it's a great point, you know, about real, actually having a fresh approach to the Bible. Okay. Well, as, as a final, as a final question then, uh, you know, what, what do you see, uh, as our next steps, uh, in conversation, uh, with white evangelicals? Well, I think at the moment it's very mixed, and like I've mentioned several times, it's pretty complex. Because I don't think there are any easy answers. I don't think we're going to be able to get rid of the internet anytime soon. Maybe we'll have a little more control over some things after the experiences of the past two elections. We can 
uh, you know, uh, regulates it a little more. Uh, some of it's the long, hard work of just teaching the Bible better, teaching the faith better wherever we can, wherever possible. I, I do think that evangelicals, white evangelicals hitching their wagon to Trump, that they will eventually look back and see that was one of the worst things they ever did. Mm. Because it is ruined, you know, speaking from a kind of evangelical ethos, it has ruined their testimony. It has ruined their testimony. Unless you're just already a pure believer. But how many people are being attracted to evangelicalism now? We weren't already there. Uh, I mean, you don't have to look very far on Facebook or the internet to find ex-evangelicals, post-evangelicals, people who grew up as evangelicals uh, who are leaving, who are dissatisfied, who don't share a lot of the beliefs that the older evangelicals have and are just turned off and ashamed of a, a lot of what is done. and. It's a small group anyway. I mean, the the recent, uh, it's maybe contested a little bit, that the recent surveys are showing that now uh, evangelicals are less than the mainline denominations, which is very shocking to them because the idea was we're the ones that, uh, I know at Southern Seminary, that was a big part of the message. We've got to get rid of all of the actual still pretty conservative professors so, or we'll decline like the liberals. Right. So evangelicals are declining anyway. They've been declining as a group. And I, I mean, it looks to me like they will continue to decline even more uh, in terms of people who are willing to identify themselves as evangelicals. So I don't think the future is bright. And I, my hunch is they will go the way that fundamentalists went after the scopes fundamentalists are still around they didn't go away but not many people want to be called a fundamentalist even jerry falwell moved away from being called a fundamentalist well dan thank you for your work thank you for the insights that you've given us Uh, i'm grateful uh for the and so blessings to you. Appreciate you being my guest. Well, thank you. It's always good to talk about these things. And I appreciate uh, reconnecting with you and uh, having the chance to just dialogue. About well, you're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, Go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. 
and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.